The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring, and I'm here with my co-host, Bruce Barquette. How are you tonight? Welcome back to life. What do you mean, welcome back to life? For the evening. You've been stuck in trial every single day. Uh, it's what we do. I if know. you forget that this is <laughs> this is our day job, right? When we first started the show, I said, what are we doing here? We have witnesses to interview, uh, motions to write, trials to do, but we really didn't because it was all uh, on kind of on hold with COVID. And now we have... Now we have um, kind of back to normal. Do you know I'm trying a case in a courtroom without a mask and nobody asked anybody what their vaccination status was? Hallelujah. And the witnesses come in. One witness came in with a mask and I was tempted to ask him to take it off because he's in front of the jury. But to be honest, he was an, almost an irrelevant witness that I had no questions for. So I didn't want to make a big deal about it. Well... Um, so anyway, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm on trial. It's great. I wish I wasn't doing two trials right now. We yeah, should have a jury weird. waiting for another one. That's but weird. We, but speaking of trials, want to talk. I, I wanted to tell you about my weekend, Bruce. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. I thought listen, this was crime and justice radio. I, I, go ahead. Listen, I drove my 92 year old grandmother to her sister's 90th birthday party. Um, oh, ha- happy it was, birthday! It was amazing. Great on Julie's sister. But for for the for the first time in a very long time, I was unable to work on a weekend because she was on me like a watchdog. What are you doing? Where are we going? So I had to drive Miss Daisy around. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> like, this, is your, this is your grandmother? Yeah, I you love her. You talk about her we, all the time. She's a sweetheart. I've never met her, time. but she seems like she's a wonderful woman. Um, but I'm back at work, and uh, apparently so are you. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I never, I never stopped other than for an hour here, an hour there. Look, speaking of trouble, Trials. Can I get back to um, yes, you may go crime back. and justice? Excellent. Speaking of trial, we, we we talked a little bit about the Parkland shooting trial, the death penalty trial down in Florida. Um, and we know that the jury came back uh, with a recommendation of a life sentence. And then the proceeding doesn't end then. What happens is the judge has to formally sentence the defendant to life. Uh, basically life without parole. Now, he's admitted to murdering 17 people at the school, so there's not a big mystery as to what's going to happen. But part of the process is that the victim's families have the right to come in and make a statement and ask the judge to impose whatever sentence they think is appropriate. It happens in every single criminal case um, in New York, in the federal system, and and in Florida. And some of the victims' families came in and began to berate and curse the defense attorneys and wishing that they went to hell, uh, just a whole uh, parade of awful things. And they end, and the, the defense attorneys took issue with it and objected. The judge then scolded them, s- sent one of them out of the well. And, and said, I've never experienced a level of unprofessionalism in my career. Right. And the unprofessionalism, excuse me. Saving uh, a life. Right. Well, defense lawyer who's an, a zealous advocate as she ought to be. He, and right. As she, it was a female. There was a team and the yeah. person who got thrown off was a male. Uh, thrown out of the courtroom or thrown out of the well, but that's not what I want to talk about. That's the lead up to this. After the judge sentenced the person to life without parole, guess what she did? 
You know what she did. What'd she, she do next? She hugged Came the down prosecutors. Off the she hugged all of them, showing her total bias throughout the entire, you know, trial proceeding uh, on a death penalty case. And it's so inappropriate um, to do so as a judge. And, you know, it's not the first time this has well, happened. Well, look, look. But, but you know, the, the, the great thing is... You can't really appeal her here because not for nothing, the defense lawyer won. They got they what had they asked one for. One mission. Right. They got their client first to plead guilty, which is very difficult to do, to tell a young man who's mentally ill, who shot 17 people and is presumably somewhat crazy, somewhat mentally ill, right? And there's corroborating evidence of that to say presumably. to say you should do the right thing here. And the right thing here would be to plead guilty. And by the way, if you do that, we're going to go straight into a penalty phase. You may, you may be executed or you may get life in prison, but either way, you're going to die in prison. And I, I mentioned the female lawyer, I forget her name, and I'm sorry to not mention the rest of her team because I remember her at the client's arraignment where he was public enemy number one, and everyone detested him. And she, this blonde lady, very kind-looking, maternal woman, had her arm around him, and she's been his protector ever since. I'm not condoning what he did, um, but she did her job. One goal, get life, not the death penalty. And that's what she did. So, so we can absolutely, I mean, as defense attorneys and people who do death penalty work, we, we can praise what, she's, what she did there. Uh, and the judge is Elizabeth Shearer, um, came down off the bench in her robe and proceeded to, after uh, scolding the defense attorneys for objecting to being. I've had judges do that, but not berated, during a trial. <laughs> right. Being berated for uh, um, by the victim's families, came down and hugged them. It, it, what it does is it tells the whole universe that the judge and the power. Uh, picked sides. They picked the side, and they picked the side of the prosecution, not the side of the defense attorney. Because of course, we—and I'll use the term "we"—because this is the work that we do. We're the devil. We don't represent the good people. We represent the bad people. Well, and the good people are prosecutors. Speaking of, exactly. Speaking of, we have an awesome guest right now. His name is John Laturco. He's not only our law partner, uh, he's also a good friend, and he took on a task that even. Most defense lawyers refused, and it was the task of defending, I'll, I'll call him this, this is not what I really feel, but public enemy number one in Suffolk County, the most detested of uh, people accused with a crime, Michael Valva, a former police officer who uh, was accused and now convicted of the depraved indifference murder of his eight-year-old son, Thomas Valva. And it was a hard case to take on, not just because of the, 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 the kind of public outcry against it in the negative media, but really because as a father, which John is, um, you're dealing with an individual that's accused of doing one of the most horrible things to a helpless, sweet, innocent, eight-year-old autistic kid. Um, so very hard to do, but 
We sometimes defend the innocent, but sometimes we defend people that are accused of horrific crimes where there's no mystery about what happened. So we welcome you, John. You have been on trial for a very long time. You took this case on um, at the kind of request of the court uh, that knew that you were a a very, uh, one of the best lawyers in Suffolk County. Um, and you agreed to do it. You you know, you took some time, you talked to individuals about in your life and at your practice and in your family about whether or not to do this. But I, I want to welcome you. And I want to ask what it was like representing arguably the most despised criminal defendant in Suffolk County over the last few months. Good evening, Bruce and Aida. How are you? Very well. But, uh, We're happy to have you back. <laughs> uh, he's not back yet. He needs Thank to take you. a little Thank break, but he'll be back soon. Hey, John, we haven't spoken. Texted a few times, but we haven't spoken. Um, I'm sorry about the verdict. I know that you worked really hard on this case. I know that not only were you asked to take it, but I know you believed in the cause. Not that Michael Valvo was absolutely innocent, but that he wasn't guilty of depraved indifference murder. That doesn't make him an angel, doesn't make him a good guy, doesn't mean he wasn't guilty of other things, but he wasn't guilty of this. Um, what, was, what was it like representing somebody so publicly despised and hated? Well, it was definitely challenging. There's no question about that. It was an extremely emotional trial, not only for myself, my co-counsel, uh, obviously the jury, uh, even the prosecutors. The entire courtroom staff, the clerks, the court officers, we went through this entire debacle together, quite honestly. We all got close, uh, the press, and uh, it was uh, excruciating at times, but we went through it. I would just like to say that, you know, taking on this case, let's remember that the Sixth Amendment of our Bill of Rights and our Constitution guarantees that a person accused of a crime shall enjoy the assistance of counsel for his defense. So no matter how heinous or grievous the allegations are, the accused is still entitled to a zealous defense. And I don't know if you saw our press conference afterwards, but I tried to indicate that during the press conference that uh, I hope that we were able to demonstrate that it was our purpose when we were appointed to this case to uh, the public that no matter what, we were going to demonstrate that we were zealously going to represent Michael Valva, regardless of the nature of the allegations. And when I took on the appointment, as you indicated, uh, no other attorneys in Suffolk County were willing to take on that case. And we did so. We did so with hopefully... Uh, professionalism and zealousness, and uh, I hope that rang true for the public because obviously we received some criticism, some hate mails. But uh, and I want to as, as go ahead, Aya. No, I, I want to talk about that because I, I truly believe that if a defense attorney can't zealously represent a guilty individual, then then guess what? The defense lawyer is not going to able to effectively represent an innocent one. And you, uh, there were some emails back and forth. I don't know if you have the quote handy about what it means to be a defense attorney. And you quoted Clarence Darrow. And if you have the quote, it's just perfect. 
I do. You were talking about uh, the death penalty just before I came on, and Clarence Darrow is one of my heroes. He was a staunch, staunch opponent, rather, of the death penalty, a civil libertarian. And uh, I had this quote hanging in my office. It says, to be an effective criminal defense attorney, an attorney must be prepared to be demanding, outrageous, irreverent, blasphemous, a rogue, a renegade, and a hated, isolated, lonely person. Few love a spokesman for the despised and the damned. How more appropriate than the Michael Valva case is that quote? So I try to live my life in that regard, and I think this uh, case is certainly exemplifies that quote from Clarence Darrow. Yeah, and you certainly do, and, and, I, and I gave you tons of credit and give you tons of credit for doing the work, but I don't want to get lost in, at least in this conversation, with what it meant to just you. You were ac- actually representing somebody, and you believed in the cause, not that you believed in everything he did, but you believed that he not only deserved the defense, but that there was a viable, true defense to depraved indifference murder. How did you take it when the jury came back and, and rejected that? And somebody told me their vote was 6-6 at one point uh, for an acquittal. It was literally evenly split. On the depraved well, indifference count. Acqu- right. Yeah, it wasn't for an acquittal. Um I had conceded in my summations the four counts of child endangerment. There was two counts in reference to Thomas, who had tragically passed away, and two counts for his older brother, Anthony, who had been sheltered in the garage for much longer periods of time than Thomas. I had also conceded or requested that the jury convict Michael of the lesser included offense of criminally negligent homicide. So he was originally charged with murder two, which was depraved indifference murder, which is distinctive from intentional murder. And another lesser included charge was reckless manslaughter. So there's subtle differences, as you both know, between depraved indifference murder, um, manslaughter in the second degree, reckless manslaughter, and criminal negligent homicide. So the jury, after its first vote, came back 6-4 murder and 6-4 something less, one of the lesser included offenses. During my submission, I argued that it wasn't depraved. And the jury considered that very carefully. They went out at 11 a.m. on Friday, and uh, they evaluated the evidence very carefully, and they came back approximately 6 p.m., seven hours later, and decided it was depraved indifference murder. Uh, I was disappointed, but I, did, I wasn't unexpected that they came back with depraved indifference. The, the evidence was fairly overwhelming. And what evidence got them there, got them from 6-6 to 12 unanimous uh, votes for the top count of depraved indifference murder, if you know. Well, what I had argued, yeah, no, I do know, at least from what the jury told us. Um, so I had argued that the Michael Vava wasn't depraved, he was unsuccessful, because he had loved Thomas despite his um, neglect and child endangerment, that we tried to argue that he was still... Uh, he did not want his child to die. He did not want Thomas to die because you have to show under depraved indifference and utter disregard 
for Thomas's life. Uh, and we tried to show that, you know, he still was a parent. He took him to his athletic events, his school events. He fought for custody for his child. He did his homework with him. Uh, he fought his uh, fiance on the discipline and punishment and the sheltering of the garage. And um, on the other hand, the prosecution just harped on the day of the incident. And it was Valda's own words that sunk him. Um, all those famous quotes. This is the day of the incident that was captured on the video. The next uh, John, we're live on the radio, but keep going. Okay. I apologize. Effin, I should be saying. Um, so you need to bleep that out. No, it's okay. It's a direct <laughs> quote that was introduced into evidence. Yeah, I'm, not so sure I'm, not, I'm not sure the we're FCC adults, cares. Sorry about that. FCC people. is not. Yeah. <laughs> Effing, I apologize. But these are deplorable, depraved quotes. Uh, that the prosecution argued showed that Michael was depraved, meaning that he didn't have any regard for Thomas's life. Um, and, and also that there was a extended period of time that Michael didn't call 911 and, and get medical help. It was over 50 minute time period from the time he brought him from outside in bitter cold temperatures, the 19 degree temperatures, um, and kept him in the garage and didn't call nine one one. So that's where the depravity came in. So, so let me ask uh, this question: um, Who was the judge that um, asked you to take on this case? It was Judge Condon, as well as the head of the what we call the eighteen B panel, which is for indigent defendant. So I hope you're going to get a little rest. Um, um, you are not that I'm, um, I'm your partner, not your boss, obviously, but I think as our partners, we all took a vote and said, you don't have to show up for a while. Uh, you should go and rest. You need to recuperate after a trial, any trial, but certainly one like this. And let's say you recuperate, you come back and you're reinvigorated and you're kind of ready to go again. And judge Condon or judge Collins or judge Farnetti or judge somebody, calls you up and says, hey, John, I don't know if you heard about it, but when you were gone, this horrible crime happened and nobody will represent him. Will you do it again? Would you do it again? Um, I'd have to look at the circumstances and, uh, and consider it just like I did this time. Right. And people don't know this, but you took it at a reduced Significantly, significantly reduced. reduced fee, so you, you weren't. <laughs> so, so I might object to you taking it again. <laughs> um, which but, uh, some once I'm in a once in a while, with, uh, private lawyers might do, right? Um, it, it, look, it's part of the process, and and one of the reasons why you take on cases like this as a defense attorney, at least one of the reasons why I I, I do and and have and would, is because today's monster is tomorrow's wrongly convicted person um easy for people on long island to recall marty tankliff you know, he's, he's one of our lawyers now uh, but in 1990 he was one of the most despised people on the in, in, on the island because he was accused of killing his parents because they wouldn't buy him a nice enough car and, and i know i know that michael valva doesn't fit into that category because he really did treat his autistic son horribly but I'm not so sure he was guilty of depraved indifference murder. It'll be interesting to see what an appellate court does. And you've got to work through this stuff. And I have to say, John, um, a lot of lawyers that do represent uh, individuals in 
difficult cases. And by difficult, I mean the evidence that the prosecution has against that individual is overwhelming, undoubtedly overwhelming. A lot of defense lawyers would go, okay, I'm just going to coast through, read my lines, you know, do a sample cross that I might use for any cop or any witness to just get through it. And that's not what you did. You gave Michael Valva a zealous defense. And the reason that's important to draw it back to what Bruce was just saying is there's nothing scarier, and we've all been there, than being on trial with someone you know is innocent and you fear the jury getting it wrong. And I know with you, an innocent person will never be convicted. We hope. And we, uh, we, we commend you. We hope. Uh, I've, I've done a trial good, with you. Good luck, Johnny. Get some rest. Uh, we'll Thank talk you to you again. You. See you. We'll be right back uh, after a short break with Mark Levin, who's the chief policy counsel on criminal justice, in order to discuss the intersection between crime, justice, and politics and the election. Will we have something going on tomorrow? I think we have to all go vote. Yeah. Talk to you in a few minutes. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. And I'm honored to introduce our next guest, Attorney Mark Levin, Chief Policy Counsel of Council on Criminal Justice, which is an independent and nonpartisan, if you can believe one exists, think tank, uh, collecting and analyzing hard data on criminal justice topics across the country. He's testified frequently on criminal justice policy before Congress and state legislatures. And we are excited to have you, Mark, on our show, especially on the eve of Election Day. Great to be with you. Excellent. Excellent, Mark. Thanks for joining us. So tell us a little bit about the, the organization that you work for, the Chief uh, Council on Criminal Justice. What is it? Well, absolutely. Uh, we started a few years ago, and we uh, served as the center of gravity in the discussion about criminal justice policy. And uh, our goal really is to uh, set forth the data and evidence about, uh, first of all, what's occurring in terms of crime rates, but then also about um, what uh, solutions have proven to be effective based on academic research and uh, real-world experience, and then bring together uh, a wide range of practitioners and policymakers from across the spectrum uh, to develop consensus around how to move forward. And so, for example, we have a, a commission on veterans in the criminal justice system. We have a task force on long sentences that's co-chaired by uh, former Congressman Trey Gowdy, a conservative leader, and, and Sally Yates, a former uh, acting attorney general under President Obama. So uh, really, we, we're kind of unique, I think, in working uh, really without regard to uh, ideological or partisan uh, uh, bias but really focusing on what um, the facts say and how, to, how do we all want a safer, a more just society. So, Mark, question for you, because depending on what newspaper I read, I get much conflicting data in this regard. Is crime on the rise, generally speaking, across America? And if so, what do you think are the contributing factors? Well, you know, I think it depends what time frame we're talking about, but I think what most people rightly focus on is since the 
start of the pandemic, uh, there's been an increase in many types of violent crime, including homicides, although we have seen certainly the rate of increase uh uh, and homicides go down and it's declining in, in a number of cities. For example, Dallas has really turned the tide. Um, so it's, it's very, um, uh, it's a mixed bag. Um, but I think what matters to most people is the level of violent crime and is far too high in our society. Um, and, uh, you know, the, um, I think that, uh, certainly, um, there's a lot of different, we don't know all the reasons, but certainly we know that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, the courts were closed. Um, we had a lot of attrition in terms of law enforcement personnel, people out due to COVID. We, we still have a lot of vacancies and law enforcement agencies. We have after school programs that weren't running when schools were closed. Um, and, you know, when you're on a street, with virtually no one on it because people, you know, the time we were all, you know, staying in our homes and such, um, that's a lot different than when you have a lot of people around, you feel safer and you are safe when there's more eyes on the situation. So um, there's just, and then of course we see, you know, road rage and, and airport inc- airline incidents. These things just reflect that people mentally were more on edge. Um, and so you've seen a lot of personal conflicts spill over into violence uh, since the pandemic started. So it's not necessarily because every time I walk into a party with non-lawyers, I get this bail reform is at fault for a rising crime in New York. And I personally don't believe it is, uh, not entirely. And I think the problem is it was introduced right about the same time as all the mandates, the pandemic occurred, and all the, you know, uh, uh, consequential results of that occurred um, shortly thereafter. So um, how do you think bail reform has, if at all, contributed to crime in New York? Well, uh, I think most of the research shows it's not uh, certainly the primary culprit. And, of course, that's consistent with the fact that crime has gone up in terms of homicides, especially um, in and, and, and quite aggravated assaults went up since the pandemic. But, 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 but you know, uh, regular assaults went down. This is true across the country. So it's not specific to New York or even liberal cities versus conservative cities or states. Um, the New York bail reform is, you know, a mixed bag. I think that New Jersey, you know, did a better job uh, in this regard, but New York has made some improvements, including in September of this year, they, they committed $20 million for pretrial services and supervision. You know, when you make a transition, it's very important to kind of ensure the resources are there to properly implement it. And, you know, one of the things New York has been unique for a long time in terms of, uh, uh, going back decades, public safety was not, or dangerousness was not a reason that people could be detained, whereas in virtually every other jurisdiction, including the federal system, it is. So that was not new with the New York bail reform, but I think from my perspective, it remains kind of a problematic aspect um, of, of New York's approach, whereas in New Jersey, they have... Um, they, they funded by pretrial services from the beginning, text reminders, you know, connecting people to treatment and, and jobs. And they also do have this ability, this discretion on the part of judges, some people refer to it as preventive detention, to say, okay, we're not using money anymore in New Jersey, but we do, if someone, after due process and after extensive assessment, if there's no other way that their risk to public safety can be mitigated, the judge can say, I'm going to keep you in trial pending your case. Now, this ought to be carefully 
limited. Justice Rehnquist famously said in the Salerno decision, freedom is the norm in this country. You're innocent until proven guilty. Um, but I do think there is a role for carefully limited uh, preventive detention. Well, um, we can have that debate one of these days because we haven't had preventative detention in New York forever. So that, that's been the rallying cry of a lot of people that are opposed to bail reform. But it, that was one thing the bail reform didn't touch. It was the same, or it's the same now as it was five years ago. Um, and nobody was saying that the bail system then, which I thought was antiquated at the time, it still is antiquated, uh, was somehow the cause of, of violent crime. Look, New Jersey, you mentioned New Jersey. New Jersey is an interesting uh, system in that it really, like the federal system, has cash bail potentially, but what it has instead of uh, cash bail practically is a lot of supervision of the people that are released pending trial. Uh, the federal system, at least the way it's practiced in most of the jurisdictions that I've been in, has cash bail, but it's really never imposed. If somebody's released, they're released to pretrial detention or excuse me, pretrial services, and pretrial services oversees what they do, uh, make sure they're complying with the law, checks in on them, they have to, they have to um, verify employment, take drug tests, things like that. And New Jersey has a similar system. New York says, give me $10,000, you can go do whatever you want and go any place on the planet. Um, the, the system still needs to be overhauled, in, in my view. But it, preventive detention um, is, is tough, especially in a state system where you have elected judges. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a, you're absolutely right about uh, New Jersey, and um, in comparison with New York, you know, the the law there now is that in New York that if, if a, the only way a judge can uh, apply conditions is if they make an individualized finding that the person is a flight risk, and so that that's a bit of a hurdle. But I also agree there's a problem, a risk of over supervising people. So if you have somebody who's low risk, like a first time DWI with no criminal record, and you put a bunch of conditions, you're not to go checking with this pretrial services officer every week, you're actually, you know, disrupting the person's life and you're, you're creating a problem. So it's important to tailor the conditions to the person based on an individualized assessment. Um, but because there are people who obviously are severely mentally ill, and if they don't get treatment, they're going to potentially uh, uh, do something uh, bad. So it's... It's very, very, it has to be very individually. So let, let's move, if we can, a little bit into the politics, because uh, you're down in Texas. Is that where you're based out of? Yes, in Houston. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a huge Cowboy fan. Love going to the great Southwest. Uh, been to Houston a few times, but we'll, we'll um, uh, leave that aside for a moment. And I'd say congratulations, but I'm a Phillies fan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, right. Congratulations on that. That's a good, good point. But uh, Texas has an election coming up uh, tomorrow, as does New York. And out of nowhere, Lee Zeldin is certainly made this a horse race, to say the least. The Democrats seem to be afraid, and Zeldin seems to be confident, drawing huge rallies. And his theme has been one thing, crime. And he's made a couple of promises that, quote unquote, on day one, he's going to fire um, Alvin Bragg, Alvin Bragg the district the, attorney of Manhattan. And two, that he's going to declare a state of emergency and, um, I don't know, issue an edict uh, kind of on his own, wipe out bail reform and discovery reform in New York. How do you think the crime is affecting the political climate um, here in New York and really across the country? 
Yeah, it's, um, uh, it, it is certainly worrisome that, uh, I mean, not space to have a discussion about crime. It's, it's important, you know, that, that uh, candidates are well within their, uh, you know, bounds to distinguish real differences on this or any other issue with their opponent. I think that obviously, though, there's a real risk of politicization. I mean, we all remember the Willie Horton ad, for example, which, you know, some people I remember was initially Al Gore who attacked Dukakis over it. And, um, but, you know, in this cycle, we're seeing the soft on crime attacks uh, come you know, pretty frequently, uh, which is, you know, a bit of a contrast to what, I mean, I, I was at the White House half a dozen times working with Jared Kushner and others on the First Step Act, and, you know, I wonder if you think, I guess, met with both Obama and Trump about criminal justice, so I, I, I hope we can recapture some of the bipartisan, because you think fundamentally there's still a lot of, if you look at polling of the public, um, both Republicans and Democrats agree on most uh, aspects of criminal justice. Um, they, you know, most uh, run-of-the-mill Democratic voters, they don't want to defund the police. Um, and, and in truth, very few elected officials actually ever promoted that. But um, on the other hand, a, a lot of Republican voters, they are, if you look at polling, uh, we had a uh, Republican primary ballot in Texas a few years ago. Over 90% of Republicans on a ballot question, the primary said they all should be based on risk, not how much money someone has. So, and you can, you know, civil asset forfeiture, there's just so many issues where there's uh, wide agreement on the part of the public um, because, you know, conservatives, those of us who are center-right are naturally skeptical of government. So it makes sense. You want to apply the same lens of transparency and accountability to the justice system as you would to health care or welfare or any other area. Um, and then, of course, we know traditionally folks left the center, they may be more concerned about racial justice or um, those sorts of things and people's, you know, just who ha don't have much money getting the short end of the stick in the justice system, which happens every day. So I do worry that this uh, uh, politicization of crime uh, obscures the degree to which the public, uh, there's actually pretty wide agreement across the spectrum. I do worry about, uh, more than just worry about, uh, a, a governor firing a duly lawfully elected uh, district attorney because he doesn't like his, you know, uh, methodology, which frankly, the voters in Manhattan voted for Alvin Bragg because he kind of promised to reduce over-incarceration, focus on more violent crimes, reduce racial disparity of those who are incarcerated or prosecuted. And um, I personally believe that bail reform in New York is not the reason why there's a perceived rising crime in New York. And I think you have to give progressive principles a chance um, because incarcerating more minorities or indigent individuals, and then eventually they all get out, right? And not um, creating programs and places for individuals to have second chances, to not have criminal records, to be able to work, to be able to put food on the table, uh, breeds happiness and less crime, right? So I, I don't know that it's constitutionally permitted in New York, but a lot of other governors are doing this or, or talking about doing this across the country, and I think it's very dangerous. Well, I agree. I mean, I think um, that, that uh, you know, 
certainly for those of us, I mean, I've been involved with the society separation of powers is one of the core principles, and it's, in some places, DAs are seen as more the executive versus judicial. But regardless of that, there's also just the idea of concentrating so much power in one individual, and that comes with if you're going to have the governor uh, be able to just get rid of any district attorney, or if you're going to have, uh, as some have suggested, the attorney general take over and be able to prosecute any case that a district attorney declines to prosecute. So in either instance, you're really uh, putting more and more power in either the governor or attorney general. And, you know, that ought to be um, really, it's a concern from, you know, having one person have that much power. And it's also a concern from the standpoint of legitimacy that the particular county, I mean, obviously we have um, a wide range. I mean, here in Texas, people have, in Harris County, in Houston, may want something different in their DA than someone in a rural county. And that's why we elect them uh, across the county to kind of reflect the values and priorities of their constituents. Exactly. And remedy in terms of getting rid of them in the next election. It, it, it always, uh, it always, interests me to see the the swing in the political movement, right? I mean, two years ago, uh, Alvin Bragg and others were running on a progressive uh, agenda, and they some people, like in San Francisco, they recalled the DA, who was very progressive. Los Angeles, there's um, a movement to do the same. And we don't have recall in New York, but Alvin Bragg is on the other end of the pendulum swing of um, the public's view of crime. After George Floyd, there really was this big push to, you know, de-incarcerate people, defund the police, at least it was a phrase out there, and to be, quote-unquote, more progressive. And then as crime rose and people got more afraid, the pendulum swinging the other way. And, and I advise people on both sides to be careful what you're, what you're doing when you're in power. Um, everybody was big-time supporters of uh, George W. Bush and Republicans after 9-11 and followed through with the FISA court and all these other uh, very, very intrusive government agencies right up until they started to investigate people around Trump. Now suddenly they hate them. The FBI used to be the, the, the love child of every Republican that ever existed. Now they're talking about not defunding the police, but disbanding the entire FBI. Um, it, it, the political swing back and forth. And Zeldin here in New York, he's going to use the yeah. emergency powers to strike down legislative uh, enactments. Which and is the, what I hated about Cuomo and, and Kathy Hochul. Hochul. With COVID you know, regulations. It's, it's the, the too much power in declaring a state of emergency, a political rage um, or attempts to get political votes is not uh, the definition of a state of emergency. And it's a problem now with all sides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of people on the right who expressed concern that, you know, uh, liberal governors might use uh, virtually an endless COVID emergency to, you know, uh, to aggrandize their power or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's the, I just worry that we're, as you said, it's kind of too much of our politics is about whose ox is being gored. And instead, what we need to do is have um, a deliberative approach. Obviously, the, if, if uh, uh, modifications to the law can be made in the next legislative session in Texas, a special session can be called. So, um, you know, suspending laws unilaterally by an executive, uh, you know, certainly is uh, kind of similar to things we've heard about. Well, the, you know, the president should just declare martial law. I think Michael Flynn urged that. So I just, you know, these sort of drastic things that really uh, strain 
whatever uh, interpretation there might be of the power of one official, I think they, regardless of whether it's from the left or the right, it creates, uh, to me, a great deal of trepidation. Um, I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, there's this kind of perceived need from Americans across the country for retribution. And I associate that with being part of the reason why we're number one in the world in incarceration. We have 2.3 million more individuals in, incarcerated than, than per China. capita than any other in, nation in the world. Why? Do you know the answer to that? Why? And and does it actually reduce crime? Because we have allegedly this huge crime problem, and yet we're putting more people in prison than any other country in the world. That can't be the fix. Yeah, well, I think it, there's really two components to it. First is, you know, how many admissions we have into jails and prisons, and some of those are for things like drugs. I mean, we're still arresting people here in Texas for marijuana. That, that, that. No, you're, no, you're not. Yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> it's one of the top five reasons people are arrested in Texas this year, along with driving with a suspended license. So um, now that most of them don't stay long in jail, is you know, but still, it's you know, it disrupts somebody's life and uh, their cars impounded and all of that. The uh, now the other side of the token, which we're looking at through the Council on Criminal Justice Long Sentences uh, Task Force, is you know, people being in prison for much longer than necessary for any public safety reason. So this is a big area where we differ from your. We have uh, such an increasing percentage of individuals who are in prison for, you know, decades. Of course, life in prison as well. A lot of lifers, you know, it's getting towards 15 or 20 percent of of the prison population are lifers. Um, So that's um, uh, obviously virtually every state has some type of geriatric release law, but they're extremely limited. Uh, So very few people get out under them. And a lot of our prisons, I can tell you here in Texas, we the, the, they don't have enough bottom bunks left. In other words, because there's so many disabled, incarcerated individuals who can't get up to, get the, to top the top bunk. bunk. Mark, it was great having you on. I hope you keep our number handy. If we can come back to you from time to time, that'd be wonderful. Uh, fascinating guest. I wish we had more time to chat with you, but thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, hey. Thank you, Mark. It's been great having you. Hey, do uh, Aida, uh, do you like hockey? Uh... Sure. I like it, I, but I like our radio show more. You're not talking about field hockey, are you? No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Islanders. Ice hockey. I'm talking about the Islanders. <laughs> Next week, we're off because the Islanders are playing a game at 5 o'clock for some ungodly reason. We'll see you back on the 21st with more Crime and Justice Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.